welcome to today's webinar. My name is Sharad Agarwal. I'm the CEO of uh, Cyberkia and founder of OnlyWebinars.com. Uh, we like to have conversations like the one we are going to have today, which is building an inclusive and accessible metaverse. And I have uh, an amazing speaker today. He's also a good friend, Jamie Brett, who's checking in from the UK. And Jamie wears multiple hats. He's a social entrepreneur. He's a metaverse architect, co-founder of MetaHub. He's also a workshop facilitator. And more than anything else, he's a digital economic justice campaigner. And I love that best in your bio, uh, Jamie. So welcome to today's webinar. And I look forward uh, to learning a lot from you, especially all the pioneering work that you are doing in this space. So welcome uh, to the webinar, Jamie. I'm gonna hand it over to you. Uh, you can share the screen whenever you're ready and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Let me just uh, get my screens all sorted. There we go. Yes, I can see you. I can see your screen, yes, thank you. Amazing. Um, well, good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world. It's great to have you here. Uh, we're going to be looking through how to build an accessible and inclusive metaverse. Um, there's lots of different content that we're going to look at, a few different models we're going to go over and a few different frameworks. So the whole purpose of this is not just to talk to you at a high level, but to actually give you practical tools, frameworks, resources that you can take away and utilise within the development of products and services surrounding the metaverse. But don't worry, we'll have some of the exciting high conceptual stuff as well. So Sharon did a brilliant introduction. I don't want to spend too much time on me because I want to get into the crooks of this session. Um, but I'm, yeah, as he said, a, a economic justice campaigner is probably one of the things that's at the forefront of my mind. Um, so one of the areas that I excel in is having the ability to go between these diverse spheres and fields and disciplines and look for the fundamental connections between them in order to gain a unique perspective. I operate three social enterprises, one called MetaHub that builds metaverse virtual environments and runs conferences and events in the metaverse. Um, but if you're interested in the work that I do, I'll give you some links at the end. So three questions that we are going to answer within our content today. The first one is, why is it important to build an inclusive metaverse? Secondly, how can we create an inclusive and accessible metaverse? And also, what would be the impact of creating an inclusive metaverse? Please, if you have any questions as we go through, do put them in the chat. Sharon's going to be looking through them. Um, so if there's anything that comes up along the way that you want a question to, more than welcome to interrupt. Don't worry, you're not gonna knock me out of my flow. Um, so I'm more than happy to answer questions to go through. So I think it's really important that if we're looking at the metaverse, we should look at where we're at and where we're moving to. So in, up until this point, Web 1 and Web 2, the internet was essentially websites linked together. So that's how our internet works as it connects websites together. The metaverse and Web3, which aren't necessarily entirely interchangeable, but uh, for the top for this conversation part, I will be at certain points using it interchangeably, uh, is around having virtual environments, people, assets, and spaces that are interoperable. Now you might be asking to yourself, we've actually had VR technology for 20 years. Why is the metaverse becoming a thing now? The difference is that the it's not just VR technology that's important. 
there are currently multiple, this convergence of multiple different technologies. So that includes Web3, VR, AR, 5G, blockchain, crypto, NFTs, and other technologies, as well as the pervasiveness of remote work online and online socialization. Um, and this makes the metaverse's arrival relevant and significant to the modern era that we live in. So I think it's really important that I give you a definition of metaverse for when I'm discussing it within the space that we're talking today, um, because there are many different descriptions, but this one steals from pretty much the best that I've heard. So what you'll learn as well from a workshop facilitator point of view is the best trainers are the best thieves. Okay, we've got all the resources, but we've, we've kept them as we've gone along the, way, well, along the way. I've got every training that I've been on for the last 10 years, I've kept the manuals for and, and handouts for. So it's a, it's a, I don't put it in my little circles as thief because it doesn't quite go the right way, but uh, we'll find this definition just takes from lots of different aspects and lots of different people's perspectives. So for my definition of the metaverse or my stolen definition of the metaverse, um, is a virtual version of a material world with no predetermined physics. It would be community owned, community governed, freely interoperable, uh, with privacy settings built in, aka an open metaverse. Now, many people's vision, uh, like my own, is that the metaverse is decentralized and independent of large firms, potentially like Meta, um, because I don't think that something like your Facebook account should be your passport to the metaverse. One of the reasons behind that is because VR has a 27% higher emotional reaction and is engaged with for 34% longer than 2D content. And I'm not sure that I want that technical power in the hand of an organization that operates an attention model. But the main reason is because the overarching theme of Web 3.0 and the metaverse is restoring power to you as the individual. For example, you never owned your data in Web 2. Companies owned your data and they made a lot of money from it. You own your data in Web3. You have the option of selling it or remaining anonymous. So we're going to have a look at digital inequality, and that's where I really want to start this conversation. So uh, there's a great quote by William Gibson here, which is, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And that really stems from how we look at digital inequality. So digital inequality is how we refer to the economic and social inequality with regards access to use of or impact of digital technologies. Digital inequality in many sense stems from the fact that we know our social and economic systems haven't kept up with our technological capabilities. The term metaverse is actually coined from a fictional book called Snow Crash, which is a critique of end stage capitalism and techno utopian visions. I highly recommend this book is a, it's a great um, insight into what the metaverse could be like. But the whole point is it, it is coined from an area where it looks at these, the impact of virtual technologies as a equalizer, but also as a way that can create a disunity and also a, a magnified digital inequality. We're gonna come back to this slide a little bit later on, but I think it's really useful way of being able to imagine digital inequality. So one way to look at this issue is to imagine a road with many toll gates on. And at the end of this road is being able to participate meaningfully in virtual worlds and from a much wider perspective to participate socio-economically. Every toll gate on this road is a barrier to participation. So barriers like access to technology or education 
or the ability to use technology stops you at a toll gate. The biggest problem is the road hasn't finished being built yet and it's getting longer and longer and longer. So those who haven't had the opportunity to participate early on and get through those early toll gates are falling further and further behind and the gap grows between those who have and those who haven't. Every time the power of the web increases and it's possible to do more things online, the gap widens between those who are digitally mobile and those who aren't. These new form of inequalities can of course combine with pre-existing inequalities to make them, over worse, or make them even worse by carrying over the pre-existing differences in human capital into a digital setting. So we're gonna look at how we can look at some perspectives on different diversities and how these uh, diversities can create greater adversity both generally and re in relation to the metaverse. However, as you can imagine, this is such a large topic area with many intersectional considerations. So for the purposes of this webinar, I'm going to be predominantly looking through the lens of disability as that's my area of speciality. However, most of the concepts that we're speaking about can be applied more broadly to a range of different lived experiences. So from a disability perspective, let's take a snapshot at the, what it means to not be able to participate. One in five people are disabled. So that at any point is a fifth of your potential clients or customers or a fifth of your workforce. And yes, 73% of your potential customers experience barriers on over a quarter of the websites that they visit. That's a huge amount of people not being able to participate, even in Web 2, and we're about to increase the power of the web even further. 75% of disabled people and their families have walked away from a business because of poor accessibility or customer service. Once again, a huge barrier for people being able to participate is attitudinal barriers that stop people being able to participate in different spaces. And I think what I want to clarify with this last one is disability is not a minority or a fringe experience. Anyone can experience temporary disablement at any point. You could break a leg, you could hurt your eye, you could you know, burst your eardrum. All of these things are common to any particular person, even if it's just twisting your ankle. But disability is not, but uh, disability can be a long-term or transient and it might not always be visible. And since it's Mental Health Week this week, I wanted to add in this section as well. Uh, so one of the reasons that diverse people experience significant higher risks of suffering from mental health illness or poor well-being is because of the lack of support and stress of masking. So let's look at mental health and its impact on participation on the spectrum of diverse, for a spectrum of diverse people. So I've tried to do this one a bit more expanded than just disability. Um, so women are between the ages of 16 and 24, almost three times as likely, 26%, to experience a common mental health issue than males of the same age, which is around about 9% normally. Half of LGBTQIA people have experienced depression and three in five have experienced anxiety. Black people are almost four times more likely to be detained under the Mental Health Act, and they are more likely to be put on a community treatment order uh, eight times more likely than white people. It's it also estimated that roughly 40% of individuals on the autistic spectrum have at least one anxiety disorder and individuals with dyslexia are more likely to suffer from depression. 
of people with severe symptoms of mental health, 37.6% uh, have a long-term physical health condition. So we're really starting to understand the impact of, of masking and, and, need, and that barriers to participation having on people's mental health. But I know some of you are going to be interested in the financial cost of it as well, because it's not just a social cost that has an impact here. So disabled people have an ever increasing spending power, and it's estimated that they have a worth to businesses of about 274 billion per year in the UK. In the States, disabled people control 65.5, sorry, 645 billion in disposable income. Uh, in non-disposable income and further funds, disabled have, people have is eight trillion pounds of global purchasing power. If you wanted to put that into context, that's how much they reckon that it's going to take to recover from COVID. So the, the financial cost of COVID is about eight trillion. The spending power of disabled people is eight trillion. In the UK, businesses lose approximately two billion every month by, by ignoring the needs of disabled people. And the cost of non-compliance is about three times higher than that of complying. So let's explore the impact of that a little bit deeper uh, in a little bit more detail. Uh, as I'm dyslexic myself, so we're going to start from um, the example of dyslexia. The average cost of a reasonable adjustment in the workplace is about £75. So quite often we think of reasonable adjustment being very expensive. Actually, the average cost is about £75 to accommodate um, someone who's dyslexic or, or autistic, or if it's buying a new chair for somebody who uh, needs to have a custom chair to be able to work, it's about £75. And the thing is, these adjustments are normally really simple, inexpensive, can often be free or claimed with grant money. Like if you're in the UK, you can use access to work to be able to claim this money back as well. And yet, with that being the case, 22% of dyslexics are unemployed. 69% of autistic people are unemployed, which is a horrifying stat, really. And yet, when we look at NASA, uh, over 50% of the employees are reported to be dyslexic, and they're, report, uh, they're deliberately sought after because they have superb problem-solving skills, excellent 3D and, spa and spatial awareness. There's a campaign on LinkedIn at the moment, which is called, which is done, uh, it's called Dyslexic Thinking. And you can now put dyslexic thinking as a skill on your LinkedIn profile. And this is crucial because it acknowledges the distinct ways that dyslexic people think is desirable. So this urges those with neurodivergencies to define the term on their own, uh, on their own terms, because historically it's only been understood in terms of deficit when it can provide empowering and transformative advantages. Um, if you'd like to learn more about harnessing dys the dyslexic mind, I'd recommend a TED talk called The True Gifts of a Dyslexic Mind by Dean Brigadier. And this dyslexic campaign, dyslexic thinking campaign is a great example of what happens when we change our mindset on participation. And a lot of what we're going to be looking at today is changing mindsets um, to be able to be more inclusive and participatory. So this is a quote by a good friend, friend of mine called Atif Chowdhury. Uh, which is diversity is about counting people, but inclusion is about making sure that they count. And I think that that's really important. What we've explored so far is a lot around diversity, but now we really want to think about the inclusion elements of that. So what I really want to do is get people understanding one fundamental principle. If you take nothing away from else from this presentation, take away this one concept. 
that someone's pain and suffering should not be the price of admission for compassion, understanding, accommodation and inclusion. The biggest opportunity of the erosion between our material and virtual worlds is to evolve participation in society. So if you're going to build accessible and inclusive products, the first thing we need to do is shift that mindset. So most of the times products and services and entire societies are designed around people who are most able to participate. In fact, we create inaccessibility and inequality because we don't anticipate the full range of lived experiences. But progress where those who are already, the only benefits those who are most able to participate is not progress in my eyes. We need to look at a few models to basically get you thinking about how we can build more accessible and inclusive products. These models are here to help us conceptualize different perceptions towards diversity and inclusion. You may recognize uh, things associated with each of the model, and you might have heard or said things that strongly relate to a particular model. Most marginalized people will experience some of these models or all of these models on a daily basis. By increasing our understanding of these different models, we can help inform our own practice and conversations by moving towards the most supportive and enabling models. So I'm just going to check everyone's with me so far if there's any questions before I move on, Sharad. Uh, no, you're doing fine. Please go ahead and continue. Yeah. Fantastic. So the first model I'm going to get you to have a look at is the medical model. So this model was initially established as part of the, me uh, the medical sector. Uh, it, and I want to say that although I'm quite critical of these different models as we go through, it's not that it doesn't have value. Uh, it's a bit reductive in the way that it works because essentially it's there to figure out what's wrong with a person and fix it. So the medical model perspective is that people aren't able to participate because of their impairments or differences. It tends to fixate on deficits while comparing and contrasting individuals against the perceived concept of normal. And there are limitations then placed on that individual and, they can't, and it makes it more difficult to take, agency, uh, take action with little autonomy or agency. Essentially it goes, well, if you have this, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. If you are this kind of person, this is where your limitations are. It also, and probably the most important aspect we have to take away from this model, is it puts the responsibility to participate on the individual. It's the individual's um, responsibility to basically get to a venue. So say you're running an event and you they can't go on the bus, so you need to be able to get a taxi. It places the need to solve these problems to the individual rather than on society being able to solve them. Okay, it's your problem, so you deal with it. So let's look at the social model, which is hopefully a, a bit more applicable to what we're looking at from our organizations and that should be the model that most organizations are starting to move towards, particularly when we look at diversity, equity, inclusion teams for the most organizations the social model be at the front of mind. So the social model says that an individual is prevented from participating because of the way that society is organized. So barriers that people may face related to attitude, policy, physical access, amongst other barriers, um, are, are society's responsibility to support. So barriers prevent participation rather than any diversity. What we're trying to say here is people experience disablement that the, the barriers stop them participating. The social model also says that society is therefore responsible for removing those barriers and ensuring that it is inclusive for everyone. Because if society was different, 
and inclusive, then people would be able to participate. When we remove barriers, we create equitable opportunities so, um, for people we, as a society and we can harness diversity. So I've got a question for, well, before I move on to the next model and I'd like everyone to be able to put in the chat. When we talk, when we talk about this, uh, disability, I actually think we should be talking about disablement. So uh, people are disabled by the way that society is structured. So what I'd like you to do is answer this question for me. If you required glasses to improve your eyesight, are you disabled? And what I'd like you to do is put in the chat, just a simple yes or no, your answer to this question. We've already got a yes and a no, one for each team. Yes, no. Yes, oh, a couple more yeses. Interesting. I feel like the yeses are overcoming the no's on this one. Interesting. So, well, what's really interesting about this different aspect of when we look at disablement is, and to kind of take away from just being a disability, is actually when we look at our social model and our social model perspective on it, because we have removed the barriers that stop participation, the disabling barriers, somebody who wears glasses to be able to improve their eyesight isn't actually disabled because we've removed this, the socioeconomic barriers that prevent participation. Now, you know what it's like if you lose your glasses. It can feel like a very disabling experience, particularly if you use them, you know, you need to them to be able to see. But if we were to take the example of driving, you are still able to drive. The laws are, there are laws that have been placed in order to support you be able to do that. You don't face a social stigma because of your not being able to uh, for having for having poorer eyesight. Uh, it's acceptable. You're unlikely to be uh, discriminated in a job interview because of it. However, we've solved the social. We've solved the disabling factors around that, so we've no longer that person no longer is disabled by that situation. If I was to take another example, if someone is five foot tall and they can't reach the top set shelf, they wouldn't necessarily be considered disabled, but they can experience disablement because of the way that society is structured and organized. So we're going to move on from that model into the social model, uh, sorry, the celebratory model. And the celebratory model acknowledges that everyone has a unique set of skills and talents that should be embraced. This differs slightly from the social model because most organizations will apply the social model principles to do things like reasonable adjustments and accommodations where we'll do something as long as the individual can prove their diagnosis. However, when we look at the celebratory model, what we believe is that any barriers experienced by an individual should be removed with ease without having to prove that they need it. By doing this, we accommodate for preferences, not just ability, which means more people can benefit from that adjustment. So what I mean by that is there is no reason that, let's say we were supporting a, a dyslexic person in the workplace and we have some um, screen, uh, let's say, yeah, let's take the example of, of um, you don't have to be dyslexic to benefit from or, or have a sight impairment to benefit from read out loud functionality on your emails. So we can all benefit from this functionality if we accommodate people's preferences as well as ability. When we design with those extremes in mind, we benefit the mean population. So what I mean by that is actually building products that take into consideration the, the diverse spectrum of people that we have 
actually means that those who are most able to participate have a greater level of participation and more functionality that's available to them as well. We can all benefit from products that are designed for a particular variation in human ability. So for example, the remote control, we all love our remote control, everyone's got a remote control. The remote control was designed for people who had limited mobility to be able to control the television because people couldn't get up to their, their television sets to be able to go and change it. So when we design these products with the extremes in mind, we actually create products and services that benefit everyone, all of society. So let's move on. We're gonna go back to our toll gate barrier. So in order for us to build an inclusive metaverse, we have to think about the socioeconomic barriers that prevent someone from participating. Our products and services have to look at how we can address particular barriers that enable people to participate. So I'm gonna dive into a bit more detail about these different barriers that we have on our, our toll gate process. So attitudinal barriers relate to the specific attitudes, thought processes and prejudices held by people with, those, with characteristics and those who don't. So these might be internalized barriers that can be severely affected uh, by participation or stigma and inclusion, exclusionary behaviors from others. So for example, someone might experience prejudices because of their, their appearance. So you might be able to remove this barrier by allowing people to design an avatar that has an appearance that minimizes their experiences of the prejudices that they're used to experiencing in the material world. And that allows them to virtually represent themselves as they'd like. I'm not saying this isn't without challenges as well. And there's, there's extra considerations that we need to take into this. Um, and also on the same note, my brother has different colored eyes and he's very frequently annoyed by the fact his avatar can have snake eyes, but it won't allow him to have different colored eyes. So he doesn't feel it's representative. So if anyone's involved in avatar making here, Linford wants to let you know that he's not pleased on the situation. So the technological barriers relate to access to use of and the impact of digital technologies. So for example, I used to work in the youth work sector with young people from marginalized backgrounds whose only access to the internet was on a mobile phone. So one of the tasks that I would often try and get them to do is to put together a CV, which is almost impossible on a mobile phone, or at least it was five, six years ago. So some of the ways that we could remove the barriers for them was to give them access to computers in our centers. It might be uh, one thing that I've done throughout the whole of my life is uh, save laptops from e-waste bins and recycle them and give them to people who need it. Uh, but it also could be the fact of being able to look at, uh, is our application cross compatible? So it works across a range of different devices. So financial barriers relate to the impact of wealth on, access, uh, wealth on accessing products, goods and services. So for example, the average disabled household spends on a hundred percent more on energy alone. This could be because of many reasons. It could be because of charging electric wheelchair, could be powering assistive technology, it could be powering medical devices. Some individuals might need high light levels um, and some with decreased mobility makes it hard to stay warm, so heating bills rise. One way we could address this barrier is by making our services affordable. So giving grants, subsidizing costs, things like that. The way that I've done that as part of my social enterprise is operating a tiered pricing structure where we use the gains from the corporate clients that we have to subsidize the cost for schools, charities, community organizations, and underserved communities. 
So the next barrier we're going to look at is a social barrier. So these are basically challenges to full inclusion. This could include barriers to aspiration raising, transitions, or the lack of access to information, advice, and guidance to make informed decisions. So if I wanted to give you an example of how I address that in my work, I deliver C-suite training and workshops, um, but that information and training isn't just helpful to high-performing executives. It can be really useful to anyone who's looking to develop their skills and expertise. So what I spend a lot of time doing is reframing the materials and shifting the context, situation, and setting to make it relevant to different audiences. So I also offer people access to my network and community and connect them um, with people who they might have struggled to get access to. And this week I launched a community that's aimed at being an open space for resource sharing and I've designed free resources that can be downloaded and shared. So I'll send you the links to that at the end as well. So an enablement barrier could be occurs when a diverse group is not represented, listened to or consulted or involved in the decision-making process. So enablement reflects the right to autonomy and agency in decision-making or to be consulted in policy or procedural changes that make Im that impact individuals. So one example of that could be that women in STEM currently make up 24% of the STEM workforce in the UK, which means that they are significantly underrepresented in the sector, and therefore their perspectives are often less visible. Now, traditionally, STEM careers and outreach and case studies have focused on what people do using verge, using verbs and rarely use adjectives to describe the attributes required. And you might ask, well, why is that important? So from a social science perspective, women are more inclined to use adjectives to develop and articulate their self-identity when applying for roles, whereas men are much more likely to talk about themselves in terms of what they do using verbs. So language is an incredibly important factor and is help us, helping us to identify if a career is right for us. And overutilizing certain words might be a barrier to some women recognizing themselves in those fields, which increases that, incense, that sense of imposter syndrome, which some women might experience. So if you want to attract female talent to your organization, um, uh, emphasize the types of people who are happy and successful in STEM careers in the job description. However, if women aren't in a position to give their insights and influence in the recruiting sector and the recruiting part of that process, then we're probably not going to learn best about what attracts female talent to the sector. So more women would be represented in the sector if that meant that there was more opportunity to have agency and autonomy in the decision-making process, which likely leads to more inclusive products. Finally, uh, last barrier is our policy barrier. So our uh, this can also sometimes known as institutional barriers. So these are the policies and practices that unfairly discriminate and prevent individuals from fully participating in any given activity. This could include a policy that dictates that office hours must be conducted in person when they could easily be carried out from home. That would enable somebody who lives remotely or has childcare commitments or mobility restrictions to be able to participate. Our first step in building an inclusive and accessible metaverse is identifying these barriers and then deciding what we're trying to remove. What, are we, what barrier are we considering when we want people to participate? This is a quote from Ruth Bora. Um, Businesses perform better when you have a diversity of views in your senior leadership position. This is not just the right thing to do socially, it's the right thing to do for your business. And I think that's been really clarified by when we look at the diversity and inclusion aspects we've looked through so far.
So uh, when we're looking at accessibility and inclusion, we are looking at the equitable opportunity to participate. And what I want to be able to move on to to kind of start finishing up now is exploring some of the mindset shifts that we need to have in order to build humane technology. So this is a quote by uh, Edward O. Wilson, which is the real problem with humanity is the following. We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology. So the gap between the rising interconnected complexity of our problems and our ability to make sense of it all is called the wisdom gap. And while technology isn't the sole cause, runaway technology is rapidly widening that gap even further. The irony is that advancements in technology have made it almost impossible for the institutions that are set up to regulate these, uh, the technology to be able to do so. So we're gonna have a look at some of these technology paradigms. Uh, the issue we need to, and these are big issues that we need to address within the development of the metaverse. So first of all, what's happening at the moment is technology increases the complexity of different issues. We live in a world of interconnected issues, yet technological advancements, even when created with positive intentions, can supercharge uh, existing problems and the power dynamics. Tech de decreases our sense-making abilities. So much, most of today's technology fails to respect human psychology and paleolithic hardwiring. So technology takes advantage of human vulnerabilities like cognitive limits, how our dopamine system works, our need for social validation, and it negative, and that can negatively affect those around us and those around us. Technology can be an amplifier, but technology's impact depends on the context in which it's based. So technology will amplify the forces at play within any given context, such as bias and human vulnerabilities. I really suggest checking out the popular, the, the highest rated Facebook post before the Russia's invasion of Ukraine and afterwards, because you can see the impact of bots and interference on the posts that are popular. And the po most popular posts um, prior to the invasion were very polarizing topics. Uh, and those have slipped significantly down the line since there has been the Russia invasion. So you can see where sometimes their, their access to technology uh, and the ability to influence these factors can, can have a play at what we're seeing and what we're consuming and the feedback loops that we get caught in. So if we want to create more humane technology, we need to operate from a more humane par paradigm. So humane technology helps us close the wisdom gap. And that's because human technology counteracts, we can create technology that counteracts both forces. So it reduces the complexity of our social issues and increases our capacity to be able to respond. So that's what I've put in the table on the right-hand side there. The difference between what our web two paradigm was um, and what we need to think about when we're looking at the development of the metaverse and web three. So, that's pretty much all the, the content I have for you. Um, I'll put these links in the chat in the chat in a second. Um, but there's a few res resources that I've been developing um, that you can download from my stand store. We've got things like an inclusive hiring checklist, some models around mental health activities, and I'll put that across to you as well. Um, I also have the Icon community, which is basically trying to create a resource database for all things Web3 and the metaverse. Uh, it's free to access. It also pushes out to LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, so you can join the community 
on whatever platform you, you utilize most. Uh, if you're interested in following me in any of the work that I do, um, feel free to connect, follow. It'd be great to kind of keep in contact with everyone. Uh, and also, if you're looking for my, uh, my organization's services, we're looking at, uh, so if you're looking at virtual environments, events, conferences, then do check out uh, MetaHub services and we'll be happy to help you out. Uh, you'll be able to find me on at Jamie Beacock Brett for all of the different aspects that I, I do. Um, but I just want to thank you so much for your attention and I hope it's been useful insights uh, and a bit of information sharing. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Uh, there's a lot of content you have shared and uh, also want to tell our audience that uh, later today we'll be uh, adding all these resources uh, that you have shared onto the MetaShapers community as well, because that's a growing community of people in the Metaverse, NFT, Web3 space. So we want to expand uh, the resources on an ongoing basis. And uh, Jamie, one quick question. I mean, how often do you conduct these workshops and how can people uh, stay in touch with you on those? Yes, definitely. So uh, in fairness, this is the first time I've delivered this one. It's a bit of a niche topic. Um, so although it is definitely becoming more spoken about. So um, when it comes to the different workshops I deliver, I deliver it around disability inclusion, neurodiversity inclusion, cognitive inclusion, um, there's different confidence models, public narrative for social change. So those are more aimed at the uh, general workshop to support. Then from a MetaHub perspective, which is obviously a bit more new in the space, um, we're starting to educate people essentially on, on how to utilize these technologies and how to use, use it to enhance the work that we're doing. So realistically that works more on a consultancy basis, but if there's particular interest topics that people want us to be able to go through, um, then we've been utilizing that expertise. We're one of the few people that have a very productive, um, uh, uh, not very productive, that's the wrong word, have uh, got proof of work that we've done in the metaverse. So we've delivered a conference at the beginning of the year, which was four days and delivered entirely in VR, where we designed the conference space, where people were able to participate in different rooms and in and, and different manners. So um, it's one of those ones that we can really get practical application for metaverse applications now, rather than a lot of the conceptual high-level thinking. And hopefully that came across in the chat today is, I love conceptual high-level thinking and I could talk about the what the metaverse could provide all day, but what I think it's really important that you walk away with is tangible outcomes. Oh, amazing. Uh, and in our webinars, we always like to involve our audience and sometimes get them on camera as well. So I've sent a request to Alison Chibara because I know she is doing a lot of work in this space, especially on gender parity issues building a community. So Alison, if you are listening in, uh, please come on camera and share your story with our audience. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, there you are, Alison. Welcome to the show. Uh, I can't hear you, Alison, your audio, I think. Uh, you're not muted, but you need to get your audio. Uh... No, still can't hear you. Now, now you're on mute. You can you unmute yourself? Yeah. Um, perhaps increase your volume. I think it's probably likely you might need to uh, check your audio source that's coming through. So select the microphone that you want to use. It's in the bottom left-hand corner where it says you've got mute, but then you've got that little arrow next to it, and it will tell you the different microphones you can select. 
Okay, while, while Alison is fixing our audio, if anybody else uh, who's in our audience would like to share their experiences in this space or talk about what they are doing in the metaverse, this is your chance. So please, uh, um, you know, share in the chat if you'd like to uh, be on camera and I'll be happy to promote you as a panelist for this session. So Alison, um, try, try again with your audio, please. Also, if anyone has any questions they want to put yeah. in the chat, feel free to. Yeah, sure. I, I think, yes, yes, amazing. Ooh, yes. brilliant. <laughs> I was just about to say, we are here to talk about technology and it's not working. So uh, again, a hard one to follow, Jamie. Thank you so much for what has been a really thought-provoking and really, really insightful uh, presentation. Thank you so much. That spoke volumes to us. So just to introduce myself quickly, and again, Sherrod, thank you for having us. Um, so I'm Alison Chiwara. I am one of the directors and co-founder of Flossvest CIC. It's an organization that uh, is based here in the UK and located in uh, Edinburgh, where we're operating from. We are merely a baby in this uh, space, uh, but we've been very, very fortunate to have people like Sherrod that have really been cheering us on uh, in this space and it's been a great space to be. Uh, and so we've been very, very encouraged. Uh, so just to give you a quick overview about um, Flossvest. Flossvest is the brainchild of Florence Alu, who you will notice is always on my tags, so I'm tagging it on almost everything. Uh, she herself is a metaverse specialist uh, and has been in blockchain since 2016. I met uh, Floss, um, Florence, um, while, we, while we're doing business coaching, because I'm also a corporate mental health coach. So again, what you were talking about, Jamie, really resonated with me and stays in line with one of my thoughts as well on what the metaverse should look like and what inclusion and diversity should feel like. So thank you so much for that. Uh, so that said, um, myself and Florence share a love for women empowerment. Uh, there's a disparity that I hope the men don't mind me saying within the tech sector in that there's such a massive gap, gender gap within the tech sector. And when everybody started talking about the metaverse, Web3, we were really presented, I feel, um, with an opportunity or even a clean canvas for everybody to begin to work from. And I think that in the material world, as Jamie called it, it's a harder task because we've got so much infiltrations, we've got so many contaminations, and we really have a clean space to do something new, measurable and achievable, I feel. So Florence and I started uh, Flossverse. Uh, we launched ourselves officially at the very end of April. So we're only a few weeks old officially, but we've been doing a lot of things in the background. So we currently train girls aged 13 to 17, and we train them in all of the uh, metaverse, blockchain technology, any Web3 technologies included, interestingly for the girls, is uh, 3D modeling and design, which we thought was just really something different and the girls have been really intrigued with it. Over and above that, we also uh, love the idea of upskilling women. Women have so many challenges, so you start having a family, you think, I'm going to have one child. Before you know it, you just, let's just grow the family. 
So a lot of your life kind of stays on hold, so to speak, or you, you're not really as ambitious during that part of your life. For some women, not all, but what we wanted to do is create another sphere for women that have had those holds, women that have felt they can move their existing skills elsewhere. The pandemic has really allowed us to rethink what we want out of life, what suits us. And really for us at Flossfest is actually trying to meet all of those new challenges that we have in a new space. And um, the response when we launched, as we were saying to Shara the other day, was really overwhelming, incredibly overwhelming to the point that we decided where we thought we could manage, we now need to ask the help of the larger communities, like everybody here on board. And what we currently do is um, we are very limited in terms of our training. So we've been very fortunate to have company, a company that we've worked with third party, and I'm not sure they're happy for us to say who they are because they've been incredibly kind. Uh, but again, we're, we're so uh, grateful for that. And so they've been providing us with the VR headsets for the girls to be able to immerse. Now, that cannot obviously go on, it's unsustainable. And they get to keep these headsets so that they can continue with their journey with what we've begun. Uh, what we've decided in order for us to reach, so our, our vision really is to have a million women either part trained or immersed onto the metaverse by 2030. It sounds like a massive task, but our model proves that it can be done. In a very short space of time, Florence single-handedly has uh, trained just under 500 people, which I think is amazing. For Flossvers as an entity, under the MetaGirls brand, which is a program that we run for the girls, we have trained just around approximately, I think it's 38 girls, which I think is remarkable because we're very new and with, with restricted resources, I think we've done not too bad, I think. Um, so at the moment, what we're looking to do is to create an immersive hub. We had a call from the Middle East, from some reporter within the Middle East asking, wow, we like the model, it's for women only. We hadn't thought about it, believe it or not, religiously, culturally, this fits. And it was just a eureka moment. Florence and I have become so passionate about doing something within the Arab nations. While we are here in the UK, of course, charity begins at home. We are already doing a lot and we're very grateful for all the companies that are continuously speaking to us and looking to do something. But our biggest challenge is to make the biggest impact where the impact is needed. And for us, we've chosen the Middle East and the Arab nations. We are going to be starting off with Algeria. So we wanted to, keep, we wanted to, keep, to have one country in Africa at least and another in the Middle East. So we are at the moment looking to execute or create a massive hubs, one in Algeria and one in Dubai. The model will work in such a way that everything stays on site, on location. The women can choose to come on site or depending on cultural and you know, family um, restrictions, whatever it may be, we will work with that woman, with that girl, to make sure that that training is delivered. So it can be from the comfort of their home, but what we are hoping is that they can all come into a, a, this meeting hub. So that again, like Jamie was saying, is that we create real inclusion, diversity, social inclusion is so important for us at Flossverse. We want to remove any barrier that we think we may, may already have and actually create a really new paradigm where they can actually do something different and learn something new and actually be able to use those skill sets going forward. Um, somebody asked me the other day, why, what happens to these women? 
again, we have companies that are already talking to ourselves who are willing to take these women on and train them further for real jobs, either on the metaverse or within the technological sector. So it's a very interesting area for us. And what we're appealing for today is any companies that are willing to partner with us, collaborate, or even individuals collaborate with us for this amazing work within the Arab nations. We welcome people like Jamie that are fantastic with training. We are looking for trainers. This is a massive task. We cannot do this single-handedly. Sharad has been amazing talking about us, already talking to other people for, on our behalf. So we are very grateful. So I think that this is a project that is a community project. You know, the Web3 itself is a community project. So we welcome everybody's suggestions, everybody's contribution, because for us, the real thing is that we want to create better gender parity. We want to empower as many women as possible. How? through educating them, elevating them, and really creating that tree quality on this new space that we are all talking about. But even before we go to the new space, we want them to be actually gender equally in this other side of the space. So thank you so much uh, for having me, Sharad. I think I've spoken over my time that you gave me, thank but you. I'm so overly <clears throat> passionate and I just want to get as much out as possible. So thank you. Thank, thank you, Alison, uh, on behalf of our audience, and I'm sure on behalf of Jamie as well. Very interesting story. Um, I totally back you up. Uh, and uh, Web3, in any case, is all about collaboration. We rise together. And uh, yeah, so our audience, please join hands uh, with what Alison is and her partner, Florence, are building. It's an amazing story. I wish you success in your venture. And talking of technology and leadership, we have another webinar today, which is leadership in tech. And talking of women empowerment, we have 12 women on our panel. Our facilitator is Susan Furness. So I'm up with 13 women on that webinar, which starts at 9 a.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. UK, and 5 p.m. in Dubai. So if you haven't already registered for that one, please go to onlywebinars.com and register. An amazing conversation is going to happen later today. So at this juncture, I want to thank everybody for being here, uh, for joining our show, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on the other side. Thank you, Jamie, for that lovely presentation, and Alison, for your story as well. All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank and you. stay safe. Bye, bye to all. Bye.